The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to Westway. I'm really glad that you are all here today. We are just two weeks away, including this week, of finishing our first part of the Wife of Christ series on, um, on the church at Ephesus. We're going to break for Christmas. We're going to have a series on Advent and what, and what that means. And then we're going to come back to this series in f- the spring of 2020. We're going to take a look at uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and uh, probably 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, over the course of, of probably the next year uh, to continue this series on, on the church at Ephesus. We're going to look at two different texts today, uh, the first of which is found in Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 to 14. Uh, page number um, for that in your pew Bible um, or seat back is 130, and then the second is uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, beginning at verse 21, and that's on page 733. If you have any questions about the text today, I would really encourage you to, to ask them. Um, I love, I posted this yesterday on my Facebook page. One of the things I love about going through Scripture the way, the way we do it is it forces us to, to wrestle with texts that, that might be a little tough for us in our, in our particular age. And when you talk about husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and slaves, there can be some, there can be some questions uh, that we have here. So I'm, I'm excited to do this, and if you have questions, I'd love for you to text them so we can interact with you. So in the spring of 1945, Germany was in complete chaos. Um, Russian forces, this is at the end of World War II, Russian forces had had entered uh, Germany from the east in about January. And then in March, American forces, along with French and British, were coming across Germany uh, from the west. And I want you to imagine for a moment being a German civilian in the midst of that time. On one hand, the the Russians are coming in from one direction and the Western allies are coming in from the other direction. And my question to you is, which side would you surrender to if you had the choice? You'd probably pick the West, right? You'd probably pick the Americans and the French and the British. Why? Because Germany was responsible for the deaths of almost 10 million Russian soldiers. I want you to imagine that for a minute. During the course of World War II, Germany had killed more than 10 million Russian soldiers. Another 14 million Russian soldiers had been wounded in action. And on top of that, another 10 million Russian civilians had been killed by the Germans. So the Germans were coming for, or the Russians were coming for revenge. They were going to make the Germans pay for what they had done. According to one of the articles I read this week, the Russian soldiers knew two phrases in German. One of them was watches, watches. The second was women come here. Those are the two phrases that the Russians knew. Within three days of taking the city of Demen in Russia, or in Germany, the Russians had burned 80% of the city's structures to the ground. And over 1,000 people in that same three days, 1,000 people had committed suicide rather than surrender to the Russian soldiers. And as Berlin was squeezed in the middle of all of this, there was a flood of people west to meet the the Western allies. And at one point, over 40,000 Germans, 40,000 Germans surrendered to one American soldier, Technical Sergeant Tom Stafford. Imagine that, being responsible for 40,000 prisoners of war. And as awful as all of this is, the surrender to the Western powers, the, the rush to surrender to the West, was really one of a better story. The Western allies simply told a better story. The Germans knew that when the Russians came in, there was going to be oppression, there was going to be revenge, there was going to be payback. At least if the Germans surrendered to the Western allies, they would find food and shelter. Earlier on in the war, Hitler had made it clear when he invaded Russia that that Germany was not going to abide by the rules of land warfare when they attacked Russia. What does all this have to do with Ephesians? 
One of the phrases and ideas that we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians is the phrase good news. Maybe you've seen it, the gospel. This is all about what God has done for humanity. And essentially, the good news is really translated a good message, a better story. So Paul, when he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's telling them a better story. He's telling them God's better story. He's telling them that God's story is better than the narrative and the story of their own day. And that's what I want you to know today. That's the thing I want you to realize, know, and accept today, is that God is offering a better story. And what happens is when we, when we recognize that God is offering a better story and he's telling a better story, that becomes a lens for us, that becomes a way for us to read the Bible. So when we, so when we hit tough texts, and this is what we talked about last week, when we hit tough texts like wives submit to your husbands, which in 2019 is pretty, pretty countercultural, right? Wives submit to your husbands, we have to have the lens that God is telling a better story. So I wonder, I wonder what's going on here would be a good next question for us. How, how should we respond to a text like wives submit to your husbands? We're going to get there in a second. But before we do, I want to read to you actually a text from the Old Testament. This is, this is found in Deuteronomy 10 to, uh, 21, 10 to 14. And what I want you to do I'm going to read this text. Okay, so this is, this is God's law. This is God's instruction to his people. So as, we, as I read this text, what, it, what I'd like for you to do is when this text becomes problematic for you, like when you have an issue with this text that I'm about to read, I want you to raise your hand and I want you to keep it up. Okay? So when you're bothered by what the Bible says, when you're bothered by the instruction that God is giving to his people. I want, you, I want you to just raise your hand. Suppose you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God hands them over to you, and you take some of them as captives. And suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you're attracted to her and want to marry her. If this happens, oh, hands already up, good. If this happens, that was quick. You guys are woke. If this happens... You may take her to your home, where she must shave her head, cut her nails, and change the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. She will stay in your home, but let her mourn for her father and mother for a full month. Then you may marry her, and you will be her husband, and she will be your wife. But if you marry her and she does not please you, you must let her go free." You may not sell her or treat her as a slave, for you have humiliated her. Well, that's good. I'm glad there's a lot of hands raised, because this is one of those problematic texts for us. We read this, and we have no idea what we're supposed to do with it. So some of us chalk this up to, like, that's the, that's the angry God of the Old Testament, right? We don't, we don't worship that God, because now we have Jesus, so, so that's the mad God. Other people read a text like this, and, and this, is, this is a good argument for them to, to reject God altogether, because I can't, I can't worship a God that would, that would give an instruction like this. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to us. So we have to ask the question, what's, what is God doing here? Why, why is this instruction found within the text. So remember, God is, God is offering a better story. God is telling a better story in his word. So at the time when this text was communicated to Moses, then it was written down, there was no such thing as the laws of land warfare. Like today, we might think if, if, if one country attacks another country and they have civilians behind enemy lines. They're supposed to take care of them. They're supposed to feed them. These are things like the Geneva Convention, maybe some things you studied when you were in your history class. That's all a relatively new concept. I mean, less than 200 years old, relatively new. There was no such thing in Moses' time as the rules of land warfare. So if you were to flip back, actually, in Deuteronomy 20 and you were, or 21, and you were to go back a page... Um, at the top of chapter 20, it probably says something like regulations concerning war. 
in your Bible. This is pretty revolutionary. God is, God is instructing his people that there are actually rules of war. And you're looking at the earliest known records of rules of war. And they're completely counter to the culture of their day. What God is doing in Deuteronomy 20 and 21 is something that's completely countercultural to the culture of, it, of its day. And while we are deeply troubled, like when we read these verses, and we're really bothered by them, and we should be, you should know that when the Assyrians and the Babylonians entered Judah and Jerusalem, centuries later, they didn't follow these rules. This was not the rule of law or the rule of war at this time. How land warfare was fought in this time is when you took a village, you did what you wanted. You raped and you pillaged and you took and you took and you took until there was nothing else to give. And when, as a Babylonian soldier and as an Assyrian soldier, when, when, we, didn't, when we didn't like the woman that we took anymore, as a Babylonian or an Assyrian soldier, you know what we did? We killed her. We sold her off as a slave. We sold her as property. And you can read actually all about that in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and in Jeremiah and Lamentations because it talks about what happens when, when Israel and Judah are invaded by these nations and how they treat the people there. What I want to challenge you to think about is what we're reading in Deuteronomy is that God is telling a different story. God is telling a better story. He's saying, don't be like all of these other nations that do all of these things. Do you see how God, in this text, is urging a little bit of restraint among his people? And it sounds harsh. I get that. But do you see how there is restraint in this text? I don't just get to take what I want. There's a, there's a process I have to walk through. And at the end, if she doesn't make me happy... I have to let her go. She's not my slave. I took her from her home. Do you see how this is a better story than what else was going on? And maybe that's not how you would do this, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Maybe that's not the story that you would tell if you were God. Maybe that's not what you would do. That's the lens that God is telling a better story. That's the lens that we're going to read Ephesians 5 today. That God is telling a better story. So let's turn there. We're going to begin at verse 21. Imitate God, excuse me, sorry, 21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without faith. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, and it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, just, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. 
Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So here's, here's our cultural lens, and if that doesn't make any sense to you, the other night, Ann and I went out, and I left my glasses at home. It was one of the worst mistakes I think I've made in the last five years, because I couldn't see anything. Amen. So I need these. That's true. If I want to see, I have to put on my glasses. If I want to understand what God is doing in his word, when we come across a tough text like this, then we have to have the right glasses on. We have to have the right lens on. We have to understand that God is telling a better story. And here's, here's the reality. The people of Ephesus would not have been shocked in any way, shape, or form to hear the phrase, wives submit to your husbands. That wouldn't have shocked them. There were probably some guys in the room when they heard that, did this and put their arm around their wife and turned and looked at her. Right? Wives submit to your husbands. There is nothing countercultural about that in the ancient world. The ancient world almost 100% acknowledged that as truth. Part of that is because marriage then looked nothing like it looks today because most marriages at that point were arranged. And while there was a level of autonomy for wives, legally wives belonged to their husbands. So Paul seems to be in agreement with cultural norms here, doesn't he? He seems to be saying, so the cultural norm is wives belong to their husbands, wives wives submit to their husbands. But I would submit to you, I I would say to you that Paul is agreeing with that cultural norm, but not for the reasons that we think he is. He is not agreeing with the cultural norm because it's the cultural norm. He's talking about something else. He's saying that, that the wife-to-husband relationship is a pattern of the relationship between the church and Christ. Do you see that in this text? Wives submit to your husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ. Wives are to submit to their husbands. That's, that's what the text says. We have to, we have to recognize that, but not for cultural reasons, not because Paul is a patriarchal, misogynistic jackhole. Paul is saying this because that when the wife submits to her husband, she is imaging Christ when she does. Those are two very different things. But did you notice how much, how much ink Paul spends talking about husbands loving your wives. Do you see how there's more time spent on husbands love your wives than wives submit to your husband? Well, that would be a completely different story than the people of Ephesus were used to hearing. That would be completely countercultural to the people of Paul's day. Because what, what Paul is calling husbands to is an unselfish love that's eager to understand the needs and interests of his wife and then goes out of the way to meet those needs and interests. Well, why? What's the, what's the reason? Because it's an image of Christ and the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up. He sacrificed for her. So that's our image as husbands. And this is completely countercultural to its day. I guarantee you that there was at least one wife in the room that when that was read, looked at her husband like, see, I've been telling you that. This would have been shocking to the people at Ephesus. Paul continues, he says, the wife, like all humans, they can't, they can't do the work of being holy and clean on her own. It's all the work of Jesus. And this is something that we have to see in this is Jesus doesn't just offer us forgiveness. He doesn't just offer us forgiveness. He continues his work so that we become more and more like him in our lives. 
So, so for husbands, your wedding is not just about the wedding day. Your love for your wife ought to grow and grow and grow, and your marriage ought to look and more accurately reflect God and Christ and the church at year one than it did at year zero. Your love for your wife, your marriage, ought to more accurately reflect Christ in the church at year five than year one, and at year 10 than at year five, and so on and so on and so on. Your marriage, you are married as Christians to accurately reflect the love of Christ and the church. And, and as the church... The wife of Christ, which is, which is where we get this idea for this series from, as the church, as the wife of Christ, our own unity and our own maturity ought to grow, and we ought to be more unified and more mature together as a body than we were one year ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago. And if we're not, if, if as a church body... We are not more unified than we were before, and we are not more mature than we were before. Then a question for us as the church body that we ought to ask is, what, what kind of wife am I? Am I submitting to my husband, who's Jesus? Is he the head of our body if we're not submitting to him, if we're not doing the things that he says, if we're not being obedient to him? Are we really following him? Is he our Savior? Is he really in charge if, if we're not more unified than we were a year ago? So let's go back to husbands and wives for a second. This is not a quid pro quo relationship. Wives, your level of submission to your husbands is no less related to the way that he loves you then his love is dependent on your submission to him. Does that make sense? As a wife, I submit to my husband regardless of the way my husband loves me, whether he loves me well or not. This isn't about abuse. This isn't about any of those things. So I know that happens. I know that's real. I know it's legitimate. But in a, in a God-honoring relationship where, where husband and wife are, are striving to serve God. As a wife, I don't submit to my husband in relation to his love for me. And, and husbands, you're not left out of this. Husbands, you don't love your wife less because she doesn't submit to you in the way that you think that she ought to. And I love this phrase I saw in a commentary. Husbands and wives, when we read this text, you need to read your own mail. Does that make sense? You need to read your own mail. This isn't an opportunity for for wives to go to their husbands and say, see, you're supposed to be loving me more, and for husbands to go to their wives and say, see, you're supposed to be submitting to me more. In a God-honoring marriage, we've, we've each received an instruction And, and quite honestly, like, I'm not responsible for the way my wife submits or doesn't submit to me. I am responsible to the way I love her. And she's not responsible for the way I love or don't love her. But she's responsible to submit. This is about, this is about duties, not rights. And my duty is to love my wife Anne as Christ loved the church. That's my, that's my duty. And her duty is to submit to me as the church is submit to Christ. We're part of one another. We work together. See, that's a better story than me, than me lording my authority over her. When we work together in love and submission, that's a better story. Because I have her best interests in mind. She has my best interest in mind in mind. Remember the lens. God is offering us a better story. He's telling a better story. And, and this text is indeed about marriage, and I've, I've heard it used in weddings. I'm sure I've used it in a wedding. 
This text is absolutely about marriage, but it's not in the way that we think it is. The real purpose of of Paul's instruction here is to not talk about marriage. The real purpose of Paul's instruction here is to point to Christ and the church. To point to the way that we are as the body and the way we are to interact with Christ. And for those of us who are married, our our marriages, they say something about Christ and the church, whether we want them to or not. Whether we are aware of it or not, our marriages say something to the world about Christ and the church. Our marriages, they'll either tell a good story or they'll tell a bad story about the identity of Christ. They'll either either portray an accurate representation of who Jesus is and what the church is supposed to look like, or it will portray an inaccurate representation of Jesus and an inaccurate representation of the church. Husbands, when, when people look at the way that you love your wives, what story are you telling them about Jesus? When people who aren't Christians, when they observe you, me, as a married man, when they see the way I love my wife, what am I telling them about Jesus? Is he harsh? Is he unengaged? Or is Jesus kind and loving and merciful? And wives, when you, when people look at the way you wife, at the way you submit to your husbands, what story are you telling them about, your, about the church? Because that's what Paul is saying here. And if we want to be people that say we, we take God's word seriously for what it is, and we, we mean to follow what he says, as a wife, the way you submit or don't submit to your husband, what are you telling him about the church? I think a lot of times the, the cultural story of marriage is, is one of disposability. I think a lot of times the cultural story that we tell of marriage is, is built on he's funny or she's beautiful. I think the cultural story of marriage is built upon compatibility and likes and appreciation of the same things in life. And then we wonder why people would base their opinion of the church on those same things. Did you catch that? When we treat marriage lightly as Christians and as a culture. Is it any wonder that they look at the church and treat it the same way? See, that's what Paul is saying here. And we don't think about these things because we're too busy getting caught up on wives submit to your husbands and getting angry about all of these texts. But Paul is, Paul is saying that marriage matters. It's an image of Christ and the church. And when we do marriage poorly, Christians, when we do marriage poorly, it's no wonder that people don't want to be a part of the church. It's a direct correlation between those two, and that's what Paul is saying. Here's here's what's going on in this text is Paul is subverting and subtly undermining the culture of his day. He's saying, yep, wives, submit to your husbands, but not for the reason you think I'm going to say it, but because this is an image of the church and Christ. Husbands, love your wives, because you are an image of Christ and the church. And what's going to happen is, is that's going to undermine the cultural story of the day. Because I thought marriage was about, I'm supposed to submit to my husband because because he legally owns me. No, there's a better story. Well, While that might be true, he does legally own you. But as a Christian, you're submitting to him because you're a reflection of the 
church and Christ. Do you see how that would begin to chip away at this foundation within culture? In a similar way, children obey their parents would have been completely culturally normative. When they would have heard that in Ephesus, I'm sure there were parents who looked over at their kid and gave him an elbow and say, see, Paul said that, so you're supposed to listen to me. But not so fast. Like this last text, well, that's true, because according to Roman civil law, listen to this, a child actually never came of age, according to Roman civil law, and was required to render absolute obedience to his father until death. Well, there's a cultural norm for you. Our ideal in the West is, is, is to marry and leave the authority of our parents. And you could talk about that because Scripture says that. But, but the, the Roman story was children were under the authority of their parents, especially males, until death. So why? Why does Paul say this? Is it because that's what good kids do? Kids obey their parents? Right? That's what we think. That, that's our cultural norm. Right? Because we want our kids to grow up to be good, respectful children, and parents that listen to their children are more respectful. Like that's our that's our cultural story. But it's interesting because that's not what Paul says at all. He says, Children, you belong to the Lord. That's why you should obey your parents. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. It's the first commandment with a promise. We talked about this during our Big Ten series because the first moral choice, moral choice that any of us will make is are we going to listen to mom and dad, right? When we're a year old and we go to do something and mom or dad says, don't do that. Parents, has, do you, if you remember when you had a one-year-old, did they ever look at you like, what are you going to do if I do? You remember that look? This is the first moral choice that we make. But like, like the instructions to wives and husbands, this obligation is not one-sided. Parents, and especially fathers, have duties and responsibilities too. This is the countercultural part. Dad, you're not just legally responsible for your children. You have duties and responsibilities to discipline them. And the kind of discipline that honors God doesn't focus on unnecessary rules, guilty. Doesn't focus on unnecessary regulations, guilty. Doesn't focus on petty corrections, guilty. Parents, if you're constantly raising your voice to get any response out of your children, this probably says more about you than them. Focusing on lesser things only discourages and provokes your children. This, too, is not quid pro quo. Children and students in the room, you don't get to treat your parents, you don't get to obey your parents only when they discipline you faithfully, but all the time. And parents in the room, your discipline of your children is not in proportion to the way they obey you. Well, if you're not going to obey me, then I'm going I'm to really put the screws on. No, you're supposed to discipline them in a certain way. Because when we discipline our children in a godly way, we're nourishing their spirits and we're giving life to them. And see, this is, this is the better story, isn't it? Isn't disciplining our children in a godly way a better story than what our culture says? The dominant worldview of my kids need to, they need to make their own choices and their decisions. I'm just going to let them do that. Doesn't that beat the, beat the common story of, I'm just going to let my child play on their device all day long? No, see, when I'm going to actively and god, godly, godly, trying to make up a word. If 
I'm going to actively discipline my children in a godly way, that means I have to interact with them. One writer says this, Parents should care more for the loyalty of their children to Christ than for anything besides. More for this than for their health, their intellectual vigor and brilliance, their material prosperity, and their exemption from great sorrow and misfortune. See, this is a better story. When we are focused as, Christ, on, as Christian parents on discipling our children, that's a better story. That's a better narrative. And do you see how this undermines our culture's narrative right now? Of parents disciplining your children, how that undermines the cultural narrative and tells a better story? So let's talk about slaves and masters, which pretty problematic. Paul again, notice, Paul starts with the cultural norm. Slaves obey your masters. Here's one of the things we're trying to do here in a subtle, undermining way with you. We're trying to teach you how to read the Bible. We're not just telling you to read the Bible. We're not just encouraging you to read the Bible. We're not teaching you to read the Bible. We're teaching you how to read the Bible. And these things all matter. Paul starts with the cultural norm of the day. Slaves obey your parents. Again, imagine. Master sitting in the room. Leans over to his wife, who's his legal property. And says, see, I've been telling you this. This, this one slave of ours just won't do anything that we have to say. I'm so thankful that Paul is going to say something about this. Well, Paul is reflecting the social structure of his times, and the household slaves would have come to church, into the church, along with their masters. And like those previous two things, Paul is using the cultural norms of the time only to undermine and subvert them. He's only going to tell a better story. See, slaves shouldn't just obey their masters because that's just the way it is but because serving other people is an opportunity to not just serve Christ, but to image Christ. So Paul is, Paul is painting a different picture of what it means to be someone's slave at this time. There's a higher master to be served, and that higher master is God. And each of us in the room, we ought to ask the question, how do we respond to people that are in authority over us? What's my response to the people in authority over us? Do we, do we argue back? Do we push back on them? Do we chase, uh, chafe against them? See, these instructions are about duties, not rights. And there's a higher master that every single one of us in the room serves. And the way that we serve our earthly masters is a reflection of the way that we serve our higher master. The way we serve and respond to those over us, regardless of how they treat us. That's what Paul is talking about here. Regardless of how people in authority over us treat us, the way we respond is a reflection of what we believe about Jesus. And just like marriage isn't about one another, this is countercultural. We think marriage is about me. It's not. It's about Christ and the church. Service to others is about the status of our heart. What's going on inside of us is about our transformation. And when we serve out of a right heart, we're demonstrating a better story. We're demonstrating something really powerful. And see, our service is seen in heaven even when it's not noticed here. This too is not quid pro quo. As an employee, I don't serve my boss when he treats me or she treats me well. I serve them anyway. And for those of us that are, that are in roles of authority over other people, we don't lead them dependent on the way they respond. We are to serve them faithfully. So Paul's pretty serious about this. Slaves, obey your masters. And as 21st century people, this is completely 
offensive. Why didn't Paul speak out about this? Why didn't Paul say something different? Why didn't Paul come against the state and say that slavery is wrong? Why doesn't he condemn it? See, I think he does. Just not in the way that you or I would do it. He reminds the masters that what they do and what they say is observed from heaven. He reminds them, too, that they are servants. He reminds them that they have an example in Christ. What do you think it was like for these, for these masters and slaves to go home after hearing this text? After having a conversation about this text? Because they didn't do things the way we did them. We do them today. Like this would have been read and there would have been dialogue and conversation. There would have been discussion in the midst of all of this. What do you think it would be like on that, on that walk home as a master with your slave? As a transformed Christian, what do you think that would be like? Wouldn't their relationship change over time? What do you think would happen when, when the other believers in the room saw, saw a Christian slave owner treating his slave poorly? I'm sorry, what do you think a unified and mature church would do when they saw that? They'd probably tell him to stop, right? They'd probably call him out on it. They'd probably say, hey, uh, you know that that is your brother or sister in Christ that you are beating right now. Don't you remember what Paul said to us when we read that letter a few weeks ago? One author says this, I love this phrase. If Paul does not make a full frontal attack on slavery, he is certainly putting a time bomb under it. See, Paul's undermining norms. He's undermining and subverting the culture. Because God is interested in the long game with his people. He doesn't just want outward changes and behavior modification. He wants transformed hearts. That's, that's what he wants from every single one of us is a changed heart. And throughout this entire text, Paul is, Paul is telling this cultural norm. He seems to be propping it up, but not for the reasons that we would. And then he undercuts it. And again, maybe that's not how you would do it. It's so easy for us today, isn't it, to look back on 2,000 years of history and judge something that someone wrote 2,000 years ago. It's so easy for us to do that. And honestly, it's so intellectually lazy. Here's a question you may have never thought of before. A 1,000 years from now, what do you think people are going to look back on our culture and judge? How do you think our rules and our laws are going to be judged. Us in this room, we're going to be judged by history. I don't know if you knew this, but there's actually more people enslaved right now in the world. There's more people under slavery and under bondage than at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. More people today we had Hannah Burkle here earlier this year, shared from Rafa House. Human trafficking is unbelievably profitable. Maybe you've never thought about that aspect of it. But human trafficking is unbelievably, unbelievably profitable. It makes more money than most of the major sports leagues in the United States combined, and they bring in a ton of cash. In the last 40 years, we've aborted over 20% of our population. It's not even going to be a thousand years from now they're going to judge us. Do you see the way history moves at this point? Something happens a hundred years ago, it's okay, and now all of a sudden it's not. I think we've, we've narrowed that time to about um, five months of something that our culture supported, and now it doesn't, and now it's wrong. Throughout the entire Bible, God is offering a better story. And our role as Christians is to live and share that better story. 
That's what it means for us to live as people of the light, to share the story, to share the light. And when we do that, when we share that better story, people are going to see the, the three pieces of fruit we talked about last week, goodness, righteousness, and truth. We haven't talked about Shane Coop very much over the past six weeks. The only way the guy gets to be up here and lead us in song is because Shane's living a better story. As we reflect on how does, man, how does Shane do that every week? How does he go up there? How does he have the strength to do that? See, Shane is living a better story. And we will make disciples by the droves when we seek to live in this better story. We will make disciples by the droves when our marriages accurately image Christ and the church. We'll make disciples when our story, when we live out the story of obeying those in authority over us, and when we utilize our roles of authority, whether we're husbands, parents, or bosses, to love and serve other people. God has given us a better story. He's offered it to us, and he's inviting us into living a better story. And I hope that you will see that this is a better way to live. Let's pray. God, thanks for thanks for taking the time to give us your book. Thanks for being patient with a whole bunch of people who do not deserve your patience. Thanks for loving people who do not deserve your love. Thanks for painstakingly ensuring that we have this book, we have this story to read. And I pray that as we interact with this story, we would desire to live this better story. We would see you at work in the midst of it. And there are hard things in it. But there's a life that you are trying to get us to live according to. And you've given us the power to to do that when we have the Spirit living within each one of us. We can live out this better story. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to introduce someone to you. Um, Jen Dillinger, you probably have seen her up here before. Um, She did our science experiment a few months ago, which was pretty awesome. Um, Jen has been here for two years. Two and a half years. Came a little after we did here at Westway Christian Church. And over the past two and a half years, she's just gotten more and more involved and engaged in, in body life here at Westway Christian Church. Okay, every, just, we, everyone, we just wave at her. So, okay, perfect. Good. Um, that was awesome. Um, Jen's gotten more engaged and involved in life here at Westway Christian Church. And over the past few weeks and months, we've been having some, like, Facebook Messenger conversations about membership and all kinds of stuff. Um, we met this week, and I'm going to let Jen share with you why she wants to become a member of Westway Christian Church. Thank you. Um, I wrote a few notes because I tend to do stand-up if I don't, um, but I probably won't look at them, so I apologize now for stupid jokes. Um, When I first came to Scotts Bluff, I had a couple of items on my wish list as I was looking for a new church. It was really important to me to find a church that handled scripture well, um, and also a church that was committed to being involved in the community around them and not just staying within their own four, eight walls. I guess we've got a lot of walls. Um, Anyway, so... A student of mine actually suggested that I visit Westway, and the first Sunday that I visited, first of all, I was impressed by just how friendly everybody was and and welcoming, so shout out to my back corner, um, who were super nice to the weird girl that came and sat with them um, that first Sunday. And I was also really impressed with just how carefully scripture was handled during the sermon that day. Um, And so I came back the next Sunday and the next Sunday, and noticed that those two things were a pattern, that people were kind and welcoming, and scripture was handled well. And as I continued coming back to Westway, 
I was just so thrilled with how many ways that this church body attempted to bless the community around them, um, whether it's being involved with United Way um, or collecting food for the Snow Angels program, um, the ESU 13 Head Start program. All of that is just wonderful. And I, I realized fairly quickly that this was going to be a body where I could feel at home, um, where I could be involved with my weird skill set and, and use that to contribute to the church um, as well as to the community around us. Um, and Westway actually makes it so easy to get involved that I just jumped in and I started serving and I started helping with things and honestly didn't really think much about membership until a couple months ago. We were in a Next Steps meeting and we were talking about how we discuss membership with new people and I was like, wait a minute, I'm not even a member. I probably should do that. Um, so since you people aren't getting rid of me, I feel like we should make it official. Um, I'm committed to serving in this body and I would love to become a member. So can I? Perfect. Let's, uh, let's pray again. God, thanks for the opportunity that we have each day to, to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves, which is also a better story than what our culture says. There are lots of different ways that we think we can, we can matter to something beyond ourselves. And while those things do, do give us a, a feeling and a and a small part of mattering to something beyond ourselves. Um, being a part of your kingdom and your church body is, is really the way that we find our ultimate satisfaction uh, through your son, Jesus. So I'm thankful, for, I'm thankful for Jen. I'm thankful for the way that she has involved herself in our, in our church body and become engaged. Um, and we look forward to see how um, we're going to mutually grow uh, together as a body and as individuals through her um, presence here in our church. And it's in your son's and we pray. Amen.